I want to encourage you to uh, turn to Luke chapter 2, 21 through 40. We have been looking at unseen, uh, at, at various uh, unsung, unseen heroes uh, who are surrounding the birth of Christ. And so we, we see a, a neat group of them up on the Temple Mount. By the way, did anybody wake up this morning and were you just blown away by how cold it was? So I woke up this morning and it was, my car said it was 42 degrees in my garage. I was surprised it was that warm. And normally, you know, the, the temperature gauge in my car slowly goes down. This time it went way, way down, very fast, very fast. And so uh, thanks for being here on this cold morning. Okay. I want to take you back to the year 1000 AD, and I want you to imagine that you're a farmer living in France. As a farmer living in France, you depend upon fermentation for the preservation of your food. The recipes that you have for this, you got from your mom, who got it from her mom, who got it from her mom, and what you know is that if you follow the recipe, you get yogurt that you know, can stay a while without being refrigerated. You get sausages that can stay a while without being refrigerated. You can get things like wine that doesn't have to be refrigerated. In other words, fermentation preserves your food, which is nice because refrigeration is not going to be invented for another 900 years. So to have that fermentation means that you can have your food preserved. What if somebody told you 1000 AD, hey, you know, the secret to this is little tiny microscopic organisms called bacteria. You can't see them, but that's why your food is preserved. What would you have thought? You'd have thought, you're crazy. If that's true, why can't I see them? Uh, you could say they're microscopic, but the microscope hasn't been invented, so, so nobody would know. The point is, people back in those days weren't able to see what we now can see. Um, and so, Antoine van Leeuwenhoek invented the microscope in 1632. He is a textile manufacturer. He peers into the microscope and he sees these little single-celled organisms called bacteria. And now this new realm opens up to scientists. Now we can see the unseen. Let's, let's switch the illustration. Let's switch the illustration. Let's just suppose you live in the year 1780 and your philosophy professor is Immanuel Kant. And one day in philosophy class, he says, you know, we exist in an island universe. And there are other star systems out there which are like little mini, mini island universes. And there are these star systems like island universes all over the universe. What would you have said? Stick to your philosophy. Don't talk about science. That's ridiculous. I can't, I can't see that. Then Edwin Hubble is working in the early part of the 20th century in his, mic, in his telescope at the Mount Wilson Observatory in California. And he sees this little cluster of stars. And he realizes it is the Andromeda Galaxy. Well, he names it the Andromeda Galaxy. And before that, people thought, you know, maybe, our, maybe the whole universe is our solar system. And then when they realized that this galaxy is 1.5 billion light years away, they're blown away. And they realize, wow, the universe is a lot bigger than we thought it was. Again, 
what Edwin Hubble did was he allowed people to see what had been previously unseen. Now, whether it's the microscope or the telescope, we take for granted that we can see the unseen, don't we? We, we also do that with, with uh, the Hubble telescope now that takes us way off into outer space. We see these amazing things we could never have seen even 100 years ago. Well, this is a picture of Wi-Fi signals. You ever see those things? You ever see them? Anybody seen a Wi-Fi signal? Of course, of course not. You can't see Wi-Fi signals. Do you operate as if they exist? Of course you do. Of course you do. We are willing to see the unseen when it comes to our smartphone and the ability to get on the internet anytime, anywhere. Now, here's, here's the point. The point is that a, a key spiritual discipline for growing Christians is the ability to see the unseen spiritually. To see the unseen spiritually. We take it for granted that these things are true scientifically, right? But there's a spiritual realm around us. Holy Spirit operates in that realm. Angels operate in that realm. The demonic beings operate in that realm. And a, a mark of a growing follower of Jesus is that you learn to see the unseen and to live in that supernatural spiritual realm. What we see in, in five people who congregate on the Temple Mount just after Jesus is born, we see people who are learning to live in that unseen spiritual realm. So I want to tell you the story, and it's a fun story to tell, and then I'll share with you the significance of the story. The storyline goes like this. Five people converge on the Temple Mount, and all are clearly led by the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We started in uh, Luke 2, 21, and at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him before the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Let me give you the background to the story. You remember that uh, Joseph and Mary traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem because he had to be registered for the census. While they were there, the place was packed. All available living accommodations were also packed, and apparently somebody allowed them to use a, a stable, which was probably in a cave, and she gave birth to Jesus in that stable cave. I'm assuming that just days after Jesus was born, they found more suitable lodgings. And eight days after the birth, um, they, he is circum Jesus is circumcised, and they call him Jesus, which was an amazing event. Imagine that they're going to confer the name that will become greater than every other name, the name at which everyone bows, everybody bows all over the place. That was a momentous occasion, and it took place on the day that he was circumcised. 33 days after that, Joseph and Mary prepare to walk the six miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. I can imagine, I can imagine Joseph and Mary Joseph is walking, 
Mary and Jesus um, are on the donkey, and they head toward, toward Bethlehem, uh, they head toward, toward Jerusalem. According to the Old Testament law, <clears throat> the reason why they did this was because a woman was rendered ceremonially unclean by childbirth. Ceremonial uncleanness had nothing to do about the beauty and the wonder of childbirth. The Bible says that that's a wonderful thing. It is a ceremonial issue. What is unique about this is that it talks about their purification, plural. Normally, it was just the mom who had to be ceremonially cleansed. In this case, Joseph has to be cleansed as well. The implication that a lot of scholars have brought to this is that Joseph participated in the childbirthing, that Joseph was there. Joseph served as the midwife, and therefore Joseph and Mary both went to Jerusalem in order to participate in this dedication and in the purification. So on an overcast, blustery, wintry day, this couple heads toward Jerusalem, probably you know on foot. They arrive, and when they get to that, that temple mount that you see up on the screens, they scan for a priest. Uh, their eyes find that priest. They head his way. And then they have a choice about what kind of offering to give. Is it going to be a lamb, which is more expensive, or is it going to be a pair of birds, which is less expensive? They choose the birds because this is a couple who is very poor. Now, in what sense, is what sense are Joseph and Mary seeing the unseen as they head up onto that temple mount? In this sense, they have this radical humility, radical humility. Now, I want you to use your imagination for, for just a second. Remember what the angel told Mary. You're the favored one. God is with you. Mary, your son is going to be very, very great. He's going to be called the son of the most high. How would you feel if you were a mom and you heard that? Wow, that's amazing. That's awesome. Mary, your son will be granted the throne of his ancestor, David. My son's going to be a king. Mary, even more than that, your son is going to have a reign that's going to last forever. If you're a mom and you hear that, that could make you feel very good. Joseph is told something similar. Uh, Mary is going to become supernaturally pregnant. Uh, Joseph, your son is going to be named Jesus. Yeshua is going to save his people from their sins. So use your imagination for a second. Is it possible, humanly speaking, that Joseph and Mary could go to Jerusalem, get up on that temple mount, and cop an attitude like this? Hey, Priest, get over here, quick. We are the chosen couple. We're the couple everybody's been waiting for. We're the awesome couple. You guys get over here, stat, and serve us. We are the privileged couple, chosen to bring the Messiah into the world. Is it possible that they could have done that? Of course, possible. This was the privilege of the millennium. Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they do that? What do you realize as they are walking with Jesus from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, they are literally abiding in the presence of their son whom Mary is holding. They're abiding in Christ. Now, what, is, what does Jesus say about abiding? Abide in me, John 15, verse 1. Abide in me and I in you. If you abide in me, Jesus says, I will abide in you. 
literally, Joseph and Mary are abiding in the presence of their infant son as they walk up onto that temple mount. And Jesus is pouring forth character into this couple as they're ascending the steps to that temple mount. Do you realize also that as they, as they enter into the temple, they are bringing the person who was the point of the temple. Remember in the Old Testament, the presence of God appeared as the Shekinah glory by day and the pillar of fire by night. That Shekinah glory and pillar of fire was a, was a manifestation of the presence of God. Well, as Jesus is being brought into the temple, he is the person who is the point of the entire temple. And Joseph and Mary are abiding in him, and he is pouring forth character. And in that case, it was the character of radical humility. Now, they're walking in the unseen. Now we come to another person. This is Simeon, chapter 2, verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, we'll stop there just, just, just for a moment. Now the scene is shifting to a different part of Jerusalem for a moment. You can imagine this elderly man named Simeon living somewhere in the city, don't know where, don't know what his occupation was. Maybe he was a retired baker or a retired stonemason, or maybe he still owns a little cheese shop in Jerusalem. Don't know where he lived or what he, what he did, but he's old. And for many years, his intense passion was for God's Messiah. Lord, I want to see your Messiah. Lord, bring your Messiah. I want to see him. I want to encounter him personally. That was his passion. Prayed about that all the time. It was inside him like a burning fire. And one day while he's in prayer, the Holy Spirit says to him, Simeon, I want you to know that before you die, you are going to see. You're going to see the Messiah. You're going to see the Lord's Christ. Holy Spirit says that to him personally. He must have been really fired up about this. And for the next several years, he's holding on to this promise that the Holy Spirit gave to him. And one day while he's in prayer, the um, Holy Spirit says, now's the day. Whatever he was doing, he drops it. He heads to the Temple Mount. You see another view of the Temple Mount up on the screens. He ascends the steps. He climbs up the southern steps into the temple. He gets onto the top of the Temple Mount. He scans the Temple Mount. He sees a couple with a child. The priest is there, and they seem to be concluding the dedication, walking toward the exit. And he approaches the couple. And when he sees the couple, he says, um, can I hold your child? Can I give your child a blessing? I think Joseph and Mary probably are used to this very unusual child who everybody wants to hold and see and encounter. And so uh, Simeon uh, takes the child and he gives a blessing. Here's the blessing. Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, 
that you will prepare in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. Now, I have to tell you, we're used to hearing those words. That was a mind-blowing concept to Joseph and Mary. And here's the reason why. He does, not only does he mention that Jesus is the Messiah to Israel, everybody knew about that, but the fact that he would be a light of revelation for the Gentiles was a shock. This is a whole game changer. In other words, Jesus is coming not just for Israel. He's coming for the entire world. He's going he's to be the savior of the, entire, of the entire world. Now, how could Simeon know all this for sure? Look, at, look up at the screen. He's holding this little baby. How does he know that for sure? Has he seen Jesus teach? Of course not. Has he seen Jesus do miracles? No. Has he seen his crucifixion and resurrection? Hasn't seen any, any of that yet. He is seeing this baby through the eyes of faith and realizing this is God's Messiah. He sees the unseen through the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, I, I want to I go back to this verse. And do you notice how many times in Luke 2.25 and following, the Holy Spirit is mentioned? He's repeated over and over and over again. How does Simeon see the unseen? He sees the unseen through the Holy Spirit. Now a shadow seems to cross Simeon's face. And he, he says this, Mary, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in the Israel and for a sign that is to be, to be opposed so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What's amazing about that statement is that he's just said Jesus is going to be the savior of the entire world. Now we see that Jesus is going to divide the world. There are some who are going to accept him and love him and learn from him and follow him. There are others who say, no way. I am not going to have that person rule over my life. Jesus is a unifier of those who love him. But when it comes right down to it, Jesus is a divider. And the division has to come, comes with to whom Will I give the allegiance of my life? Is the allegiance of my life going to come from me? I'm not going to like Jesus if that's the case. Or is the allegiance of my life going to come from God? If so, I may come to Christ. Uh, the word gets a little darker. Now Simeon says, Mary, a sword will pierce through your soul also. By the way, you know, is it, is it a good thing, like at a birthday or a wedding, to say bad things, to say bad things about the future? You know, you, you, you know if somebody gets up at a wedding and gives a toast, you know, and, and it's a bad toast, that, that's not a good thing. That's like a very, very awkward, dark moment in a wedding. Why is Simeon saying these things at the dedication of Jesus in the temple? Because he's a prophet. And because sometimes prophets say things that are hard things. And Simeon is overjoyed at seeing the Messiah. But what he's saying is, this Messiah, the Savior of the world, is going to force decisions of every human being. Do I follow after my own personal interests? Or do I follow after Jesus Christ? I can imagine uh, Mary um, just sobered by what she's seeing. Okay, back to Simeon. Simeon sees the unseen 
because of the power of the Spirit. So let's compare Joseph and Mary coming into the temple and Simeon coming to the temple. Joseph and Mary see the unseen because they're abiding in Christ. Jesus is with them in the flesh. Simeon sees the unseen because the Holy Spirit is pouring out information to him as he's coming up onto the Temple Mount. Now we get the third example. The third example is Anna. By the way, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 96 times in Luke and Acts. That's a lot of times to mention the Holy Spirit. This is the first instance of the use of the term Holy Spirit in Luke's writings. So Luke wants us to get the picture that if we want to encounter the unseen, we have to encounter the fullness of the Spirit. Now we go to Anna in verse 236. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to, to uh, all the, who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Not only does Luke uh, feature a strong emphasis on the Holy Spirit in his writings, but he also has a strong emphasis on the leadership of women in his writings as well. It's interesting um, that if you look at the Old Testament, there are nine female prophets in the Old Testament. So when the people are looking at Anna and what Anna is about to say, I have a, I have a hunch they thought about Anna, Anna in light of these nine prophets in the Old Testament. So you have Sarah, who was a prophet. Miriam was considered a prophet. Deborah, who was serving under the time of the judges, was considered a prophet. Hannah, the wife of Elkanah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, the mother of Samuel, was, of course, a, a prophet. Abigail, Huldah, and Esther, not so well, names not so well known, uh, they were considered prophets. Uh, here's a name that's really not well known, Noadiah, and Nehemiah 6.14, and Isaiah's wife is considered a prophet. So when, when, when Anna is speaking on the Temple Mount that morning, they probably were thinking about her in context with these other nine prophets in the Old Testament. Um, Anna was incredibly old for the ancient world. If you arrived to adulthood in the ancient world, maybe you arrived at the age of 55, maybe, maybe 60. 80 was really old. Depending upon how you do the math in that verse, it's possible that Anna was 105 years old. She was really old for the ancient world. That's old these days, but I mean, that's really old for the ancient world. So imagine Anna. She's uh, going up to the temple every day. We shouldn't interpret this literally, that she's living on the Temple Mount. Uh, There's no way that the authorities would have allowed somebody to live there full time. What this is saying is that she would come early in the morning, stay late at night, go home and sleep, come back early in the morning, stay late at night, come home and sleep. All the time she was doing that. So one day, Anna looks across the Temple Mount and she sees Joseph, Mary, Jesus, Simeon. And she walks their way. And uh, she begins to speak. Everybody knows her. Everybody knows her. She's a unique individual. 
And as she is speaking, she is conveying a sense of gratitude. More people gather. Still more people gather. Pretty soon, there's a crowd. And Anna is acting like Simeon, acting the prophet. Now, how is it that Anna is seeing the unseen? Well, like Jesus, like Joseph and Mary are abiding in the physical Christ in their presence, and like Simeon is, is filled with the Spirit, it would appear that Anna is in touch with the Father. That there's a sense in which she is pouring out her soul to God the Father. It doesn't say that explicitly, but the language seems to indicate that that's possible. Now we move to Jesus, and we see that uh, Jesus is also living in the unseen. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. You'll notice that Luke omits a whole season of Jesus' life because Jesus, in, according to the Gospel of Matthew, went down to Egypt with his mom and dad, sojourned there for a while, and then came back up, not to Bethlehem, but up to Nazareth. Luke omits that time period. All Luke says was, they went back to Nazareth, Jesus grew up. Now, let's think about this for a second. If you're Jesus, and you are destined to become this great person, and all authority is going to be vested in you, how do you feel about living in Nazareth? How do you feel about that? Nazareth, at that point, was probably a town of 600 the thing that you probably forgot about is that the big city, Sepphoris, is just four miles away. Sepphoris is the capital of that region of Galilee. Sepphoris is big. Sepphoris is beautiful. There's a big Greek theater in Sepphoris. It is the cultural center of Galilee. But you're Jesus, and you're not living in Sepphoris. You're living in Nazareth. How do you feel about living in Nazareth? You're going to become the savior of the world. You're the second person of the Trinity. How do you feel about living in Nazareth? You know, the name Nazareth probably comes from a root that means, not sar, the root means shoot or stump. So literally, Nazareth means shoot, shootsville or stump town. It is not a glamorous place to be. Imagine Jesus getting up into his 20s, getting close to his 30s, thinking, I got a lot of work to do. And here I am in Schutzville. I'm in Stumptown. You know, humanly speaking, that could be difficult. Jesus is going to claim to be the Son of God in Matthew. He's going to predict his resurrection in Mark. He's going to use the seven I am statements in John. And he's stuck in Schutzville, stuck in Stumptown. Humanly speaking, that could be difficult. Why wasn't it difficult for Jesus? Because he is living in the unseen. You remember how they're at the wedding and his mom, Mary, says, Jesus, go, go do a miracle, man. Come on, do, 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 do a miracle. He says, um, Mom, my, my time hasn't come yet. Because Jesus sees the unseen, he's willing to place the timing of his life into the hands of the Father. So you have five people who converge just after Jesus is born on the Temple Mount. Joseph and Mary, 
Anna and Simeon, and of course, Jesus, who'll grow up in Nazareth. Five people who are committed, committed to seeing the unseen in their life. So, <clears throat> Joseph and Mary see the unseen as they care for the baby Jesus. Simeon, as he prophesies about the ministry of Jesus. Anna, as she explains why Jesus is the answer to longing. And Jesus, as he waits for his time to come. So, <clears throat> let's go from the story to the significance. Here's the significance for you and I. Living in the unseen means we see the world with spiritual eyes. The theology of this comes from 2 Corinthians 4.18. Paul says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In that verse, Paul is describing a worldview. And the worldview is the worldview that pulsates through the scriptures, that there is a, a realm that we see, and there is an equally real realm that we don't see. Now, you as a follower of Christ have to decide what worldview am I going to live in as a spiritual discipline. I'm sure you know this, but um, the worldview of Marxism has become very popular recently. I was reading an article this week that said that Tesco, the grocery store chain in England, had put out copies of Das Kapital. And people were snapping them up. They said that there was this, this surge of sales in the materials of Karl Marx. So I, I, I wondered, is that same thing true in the United States? So I did a little bit more research. There was, sure enough, there was an article by a reputable source. Of course, you have to say that now because of all this talk about fake news. But there was an article from a very reputable source saying that there was an upsurge in sales of the books by Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche and others. Now, you have to realize that if you, if you embrace the Marxist worldview, there can be no spiritual unseen realm. Karl Marx firmly embraced the idea that material is all there is. You have no soul, Marx would say. There are no unseen Angel, angel, there's no unseen angelic realm. There's no Holy Spirit. There's no God above. Marxism is a materialist worldview. And so, in, in, in a lot of ways, you know, 2 Corinthians 4.18 is calling you into a rejection of that Marxist worldview and an embracing of the biblical worldview that says, no, there is a very real unseen realm around me, and I need to live productively in that realm. There's another uh, worldview out there that says, well, yes, there are spiritual, there's a spiritual worldview out there, but, you know, it's kind of a neutral worldview. I mean, like, yeah, there's maybe a force out there, maybe the force of Star Wars that's out there, but, you know, I mean, I'm okay with, with, that, with that impersonal spiritual being. No, no problem for me to believe in that. He's not, it's not going to hold me accountable at all. That's another worldview. And 2 Corinthians 4.18 would say, you got to choose to live moment by moment in that worldview. It says there is a very real unseen realm around us, and we live and move and exist 
within that unseen spiritual realm. Now, in that realm, it's always interesting for me to think about how God intervenes. Think, think about how God breaks through in unseen ways. Sometimes he does it in common grace. Um, you know, I, I love snow in Oklahoma because it's not going to last very long. If you're up in Minnesota, lasts a long time. If you're up in Saskatchewan, Canada, lasts a long time. Not too long in, in Oklahoma. I like that. But how many of you woke up this morning and, and looked at the snow and said, that is beautiful. That is really beautiful. I like snow, just as long as it, it all melts after January the 15th. But it's beautiful. That's common grace. Common grace is seeing a sunset and thinking, that is beautiful. Common grace is harvesting vegetables in your garden, and they taste really good. And you say, this is, this is so cool. Lord, thank you. That's common grace. Living in the unseen means that you are highly conscious of God's good common grace, the things that he gives you every single day. The air that you breathe, the food you consume, the fun things that you do, the family you enjoy. Part of living in the unseen spiritual realm is showing gratitude for those things. Sometimes God intervenes with providence. You pray about something. And God intervenes, and he grants you the answer to that prayer. That's living in the unseen realm. When you pray, God answers. You say, Lord, thank you. That's answered prayer. That's living in the unseen spiritual realm. Sometimes God intervenes in minor miracles. I've had three people in the past week tell me that in the medical procedure that they had done, that the doctor said, I think God intervened on your behalf. The physician said that. So when you live in the unseen spiritual realm, you're recognizing that God will sometimes do minor miracles. Minor miracles. Now, I, every miracle is, you know, you could argue is major, but I'm distinguishing between some miracles that are, that are pretty cool and that are just flat out impossible. And sometimes God breaks through in major miracles things that were completely impossible, God breaks through and he performs something unexpected. Living in the unseen realm means that we live with at least these four categories of God intervening. How many of you could say, you know, I asked this question because I've been reading more, more and more about how people answer this question. Don't you have to raise your hands, but how many of you would, would say, you know, I, I kind of feel like maybe at one point in my life, I had an angel intervene on my behalf. It is surprising the number of people in the United States of America when asked that question will say, yes, I think that's happened. Well, living in the unseen means that you recognize that is something that could take place. And you trust that God will deliver his angelic help when you actually, actually need it. Living in the unseen is a worldview matter. It's a discipline. And the discipline of doing that means you are committed to that worldview and you're committed to seeing God doing things in the unseen realm. Now, when I say it's a discipline, I say that largely because of what we find in 2 Kings 6.17. You may remember that uh, Elisha is <clears throat> with his, his servant Gehazi. And um, <clears throat> Elisha is, and Gehazi are surrounded by uh, the Syrian 
troops led by Ben-Hadad. They want to get rid of Elisha in the worst way. So Ben-Hadad sends soldiers to surround the city of Dothan. And uh, Gehazi gets up and he sees all of the soldiers surrounding the city. And he says, okay, we're, <laughs> this is it for us. We're history. We're about ready to be slaughtered and killed. This, we're in big trouble. Elisha is surprisingly unconcerned. And he's unconcerned because he is in the habit of seeing the unseen. And so Elisha says, um, oh Lord, please open the eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So Elisha apparently saw this. Gehazi did not see this. And once Gehazi's eyes are open, all of a sudden he realizes, oh, okay, so the forces that are on our side are far bigger and far stronger than the forces that are on their side. God is going to intervene. Now, I take it from that story that living in the unseen is a spiritual discipline that we can cultivate so that more and more we're able to observe when God is working on our behalf, how he's working on our behalf, how we might walk in that unseen realm more productively. But it's a discipline that we need to cultivate. What's the key to that cultivating that discipline? I go back to this idea of humility. I go back to the idea of humility. I want you to think about the five people that were up there on the Temple Mount that day. All of them, by the world standards, were a bit quirky. They were all a bit different. Uh, they, they weren't part of the world's elite. Th th think about that for a second. Joseph and Mary. This couple had been terribly misunderstood back in Nazareth. I mean, if, if somebody had said to Mary, now, now Mary, tell me your story again about how you got pregnant. You're saying it was an angel, and that angel told you you would be supernaturally pregnant? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I guarantee you, Mary and Joseph were terribly misunderstood up in Nazareth, and they, they were living in the context of being consistently misunderstood. In fact, the Pharisees, Pharisees at one point in the Gospels say, hey, look, we weren't born of fornication. So this, this rumor was out there that Joseph and Mary had this immoral liaison, and that's why Jesus was born. This couple was deeply misunderstood. Think about Simeon. Here's an old guy, you know, who's got this passion for the Messiah. Think anybody ever said to, to Simeon, Simeon, chill out. Buddy, buddy, chill out. Chill out. Messiah's going to come in his own time. You don't need to be so passionate about, about the Messiah coming. And Simeon would not chill out. He had this yearning, this hunger, this longing of seeing the Messiah. So this is a guy who was most likely very misunderstood. Uh, Anna was, was really misunderstood. Even though there were nine female prophets in the Old Testament, it was definitely not a major thing to be a female prophet. And here she is always in the temple. People probably passed Anna and said, what is that? What's that old lady doing in the temple? Like, what's her story? She is always, always here. And she's always praying. And she's so thin. She's fasting all the time. What's wrong with her? 
She's a bit misunderstood. And Jesus is misunderstood as well. Isaiah 53 verse 2 is a very important verse about Jesus. It says that Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He would never have appeared on the cover of GQ. Never have appeared on the cover of People magazine as the sexiest man. Jesus, when you looked at him, you thought, hmm, who is that guy? Who is that guy? You're just not naturally attracted to him. So the five people who end up on the Temple Mount have one central character in common. Humility. And it's not necessarily the humility that came because, okay, Lord, I humble myself before you. I'm awesome, but I'm going to be humble. Now, this was an enforced humility, a humility that came about because of life circumstances that were difficult, in some cases agonizing. They were people who are a bit quirky, given the standards of the world. You want to see the unseen? You want to see the unseen? The price for seeing the unseen is you walking in humility. And then walking in the Spirit or abiding in Christ or abiding in the love of your, of your Abba Father. It starts with humility. God says that uh, I resist the proud. I resist the proud. I hold the proud at arm's length. I hold the proud at bay. But I fellowship with the humble. I fellowship with the humble. So in some ways, you know, how do, how, do you, how do you encounter the fullness of the Spirit? It's humility. What's the key trait in abiding in Christ? It's humility. What does it take for you to, to encounter the love of your Abba Father? It's humility. You want to encounter the triune God. You've got to be humble. Why would that be? What do you suppose it is about God that requires humility? I think it's because at the center of God's infinite triune love, there is humility. There's humility. You ever hear of Jesus saying things like, hey, don't, don't go looking up there at God the Father. I'm the one doing all these works. I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. Don't go glorifying the Father because it's, it's, it's me who's doing all this. You, you never, ever hear that. You ever hear the Holy Spirit saying, I, I feel left out. Everybody's worshiping the Father and the Son. And, and I, I, I feel left out. I demand my rights. You ever hear any of that? No, you never hear that. What is at the center of triune love is humility in the Godhead. So here God has invited you into his triune love. But you have to realize the culture at the center of triune love is humility. Father glorifies the Son. Son glorifies the Father. Father and Son send the Holy Spirit to do the work the fresh work at Pentecost. There's all of this going back and forth within the Trinity, each one building up the other. There is humility at the center of triune love. If you want to see the unseen, it begins with an attitude of humility. I find it interesting that um, a lot of scientists now are trying to see the unseen in more and more specific ways. Here's a model up on the screens of this thing that is called dark matter. Dark matter is the invisible form of matter, at least they think it is now, um, that accounts for most of the universe's mass. They want to see dark matter. 
You get scientists who are peering more and more deeply into protons, neutrons, electrons, and they want to see what they're made of. So, so they're, they're, they're looking now at quarks and gluons and bosons and neutrinos, all these in, uh, just so, so small things that, that, that can't even be seen by a microscope. They're that small, but you can see the trails of them as they travel through space. We want to see the unseen. We know, we know that it's there. We, you know, scientists want to walk in it. Well, you know the unseen is there as well. You know that your Abba Father is there. You know that your Abba Father is omnipresent. You know that Jesus the Son is seated at his right hand. He's omnipresent. He is with you. You know that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He's inside you. The God of the universe wants you daily, moment by moment, to live and walk and be conscious of living in that supernatural, unseen realm. You've got a great opportunity, I think, at, during the Christmas holidays to do that. I know it's busy now because you're buying presents and you're trying to figure out you know, where to go and what to do. I know it's busy now. But take some time to encounter the unseen as you go through these Christmas holidays. The cool thing about it is when you encounter the unseen spiritual realm, you encounter the leadership of the triune God. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Um, before we pray, look at that final question up on the screen. How skilled are you at seeing the unseen? You may say, I'm, I'm, I'm at a one, not very. You might say, I'm at an eight. You might say, I want to be at a 10, but I'm at a, a 7.5. My challenge to you is whatever numeric value you apply to seeing the unseen, my challenge to you is that you would say, Lord, bump that up. I want to do better in the coming year and let it begin this Christmas season. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to enter into this season of the year where we can meditate on your, your greatness, your love, your glory. Father God, we submit ourselves to you right now. We acknowledge that you are, you are here, you are present. Lord, may we walk close to you this week in the lead up to Christmas. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Merry Christmas. Have a great week. Don't forget to come uh, Christmas Eve and then Christmas morning at 10 o'clock.